off. Matt's going to be working around with um, a handout. Um, they'll be kind of going around. Hopefully there's enough. Um, I, I could stand up here this morning making any promises that one of these days I'm going to have PowerPoint slides, but I don't want to lie at the beginning of my sermon. So Do you know how I to use it? Huh? Do you know how to use it? PowerPoint? <laughs> Matt, that's a... That's, that's insulting. <laughs> I do know how to use it. <clears throat> so we're going to be, as, as Matt said, we're, we're in the book of Exodus, uh, our current sermon series right now. As Matt said, my name is Derek Bass. I've um, been for a little over a year, and I've been pleased to watch God work and grow this church. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read from Exodus 2, 11 through 22, which is this morning's uh, text that we'll be looking at, uh, then we'll pray and then we'll, we'll break it down and walk through the passage together. So open up if you've got a Bible or you've got it on your phone or maybe it appears behind me um, to Exodus chapter 2 verses 11 through 22. If you're new to the Bible, that's the second book in the Bible. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and he looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Yershon, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. God, we thank you that we can sing your praise because you are a God who sees. You are a God who is attentive. You are a God who loves sinners like us. You are a God who rushes to our aid to save us, to help us, to be with us, to make us your very own dearly loved prized possession. Father, we ask you today to help us, help me as I teach, as I preach your word, help those under the word this morning to be attentive. Lord, help me to be clear, help them to hear, but ultimately, Father, we ask that they would hear the voice of Jesus, the good shepherd, calling out to them, shepherding their souls, and if there are those in our midst, and I have to believe there are, who don't know you, don't know your son yet, Father, I pray that you, through this gospel, this good news, you'd be drawing them to Christ. You'd be drawing them to your Son, opening their eyes, causing them to see how great you are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We, we live in uncertain times. Terror, attacks, political upheavals, global and economic uncertainty. The list just could go on and on and on. And one of the things I find is that people love a good story. 
And sometimes we love a good story because it's a nice escape hatch from reality. And it's just nice to get a break and, and, and involve ourselves in, in another universe, as it were, where we don't have to worry about the problems that are facing us personally, you know, on a larger scale. But the best story, the best stories, but the best story indeed is the story that's a true story, that is grand and great and actually captures us, captures our lives and takes us up in it because it comes down where we are. We're in our fourth week now in the book of Exodus. And, and this book is an amazing book in God's word, right in the heart of his story of his redeeming love. How he is a God who keeps his promises, how he is a God who comes and rescues his people in order to come and dwell in their midst. We saw last week how the gospel was foreshadowed in the, in, in the birth and basket and deliverance of Moses. We saw how that event echoed back to Noah's Ark and the deliverance from the floodwaters of God's wrath against human sins. How both Noah and Moses were saved from a watery death through this receptacle, as it were, that God had provided we read a basket in Exodus, but it's the same word for this massive ark that God told Noah to construct. In, in both cases, it was God's deliverance. That event in baby Moses' life looked backward, connecting Moses to Noah, and it foreshadowed Moses leading the Israelites through the Red Sea on dry ground. Deliverance through the walls of water on either side that would close in on Pharaoh and his army becoming their tomb. We saw, too, that Moses was a good baby and that it probably didn't refer to, you know, him sleeping through the night or, you know, not crying too much, but was harkening back to creation. And the sevenfold refrain when God said of creation, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is very good. And somehow this is pointing to God doing a new thing through, through Moses. A new thing, but, but, but an old thing connected to what he's been doing through Noah and then Abraham. Indeed, Exodus 2, 1 presents Moses, a baby, basket as a solution to the genocidal rage of Pharaoh, who is casting male babies from Israel into the Nile River. Now, if ever a people needed a story to enter in and swoop and grab them up, it was Israel. And God continues to unpack. You see, God commanded the first couple, Adam and Eve. He commanded them to be fruitful, multiply, to fill the earth. If you know the story of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3 tells the heart-wrenching story of how they rebelled against God, how they didn't obey God, how they brought sin and death into the world through their rebellion against the king of the universe who had created them for his glory, who had created them to be with them. The story goes on how God chose Noah and, and he reconstitutes and he, and he reinstitutes his plan with Noah. Noah is presented as a, as a second Adam coming off of the ark. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth is, is stated to Noah. And he's not off the boat long before he gets drunk and does some stupid stuff and God moves on and calls through Noah another one named Abram. And in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, these three short verses, God is calling Abram out, and he's making great promises of blessing. Now, it's interesting. If you look at Genesis 12, 1 through 3, 
In three verses, five times the word blessing is used. Blessed, blessed, or blessing. And, and when you pay careful attention to the scriptures, up to that point in God's word, the word curse has been used exactly five times. And so what the writer, what Moses is signaling is that God is bringing about a change. He's bringing about new creation. He's bringing about salvation through Abram and his seed. It's also important to notice that with Abraham, the command to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, becomes a promise. God promises to make Abraham fruitful and multiply. And so then when we come to Exodus chapter 1, verse 7, we see how the promise is now being fulfilled, that the people of Israel were fruitful, and they increased greatly. They multiplied, and they grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. And again, we see Pharaoh's genocidal rage against the seed of the woman, God's promise back in Genesis 3.15 that a redeemer would come through the woman, that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. And there's this good versus evil, seed of the woman, seed of the serpent, cosmic battle going on. And here we see the seed of the serpent, Pharaoh, taking his attack directly upon the male seed of Israel. God's solution was a baby. We see in the New Testament as well, quite to our surprise, that God's solution is a baby. In this section of Exodus we're looking at this morning, just as the previous section takes Moses and connects him back, but also foreshadows the coming redemption that God is bringing about. This passage connects Moses back and also shines forward into the future. If you have the little outline there, the, the, the big idea, the theme of this morning's sermon is this. In the real life actions of Moses, our gracious and saving God foreshadows his future works of grace. And we must cling to this amazing book, reading it ravenously. I want to look again at verses, one, uh, verses 11 through 15. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and he looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, the two Hebrews were struggling. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? This week as I was preparing for the sermon, I'll oftentimes just start with the text, but eventually I'll look at commentaries, right? And it was amazing to me as I looked at commentary after commentary after commentary, how they focus on Moses's actions, how they, how they psychologize his actions, how they moralize his actions. Oh, yeah, Moses, Moses, uh, Moses committed premeditated homicide here. Moses clearly was looking this way and that to make sure nobody was looking at him. And what he did was wrong. What's interesting is the text doesn't say anything about or offers no value judgment at all about his actions. And I would contend that that line of reasoning completely misses what this narrative is about. There, there are markers, there are hooks, there are connections throughout this passage that the writer himself, who I would contend is Moses, is helping us to see what this story is all about. Yes, Moses, he goes out and he sees and he strikes. And these two words are 
or Talitha. These two words actually help us to see that what Moses is doing is pointing to what God is doing. That Moses' very life is, is telling a story beyond himself. His actions of seeing and striking resoundingly foreshadow the Lord's actions. And at least twice in the New Testament, New Testament writers comment favorably on Moses' actions. In fact, the New Testament praises Moses for his faith. In Acts 7, a guy named Stephen is giving a defense before the same Jewish high council that had condemned Jesus to death. And Stephen takes the Jews on a brilliant tour of redemptive history, going from Abraham to Christ. And what he's doing is he's exposing their unbelieving, rebellious hearts that culminated in their crucifixion of Jesus. And he says of Moses' actions here in Exodus 2, he says, beginning in Acts 7, 22 and following, And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. It's from this passage that we find out that Moses was about 40 years old. But this passage speaks to the justice of his actions. It speaks to something of his intent in going out. But it's this language within the text itself of, his, of him seeing and striking that points to God's actions. Right there in verses 11 through 2, three times it speaks of Moses seeing. He went out and looked on their burdens, right? And he saw an Egyptian beating the Hebrew. In verse 12, it speaks of him seeing no one. But if you look down in verses 23 through 25, after this passage is over, this is a bit of a, a refrain in verses 23 through 25 that speak of how after Moses is is in exile for some time, around 40 more years, that people begin to cry out to the Lord because of their burdens. And verse 25 says that God saw the people of Israel and God knew. You see, Moses is seeing of their burdens. Moses seeing the man beating his brother is linked to God seeing his people. And just as God is seeing his people and will strike down the Egyptians, so here Moses sees the plight of his people. And he comes and strikes down the oppressor. Three times in this passage, the verb for striking down is used. It's a little bit obscured here in the ESV because in verse 11 it speaks of the Egyptian beating a Hebrew and then Moses having struck down the Egyptian and then Moses saying to the Hebrew hitting or striking the other Egyptian why do you strike your companion? It's the same verb each time. First Moses' actions were commensurate with those of the oppressors in defense of the oppressed and secondly Exodus 1 told of the harsh treatment and the genocidal program wherein Pharaoh sought to wipe out all the male children of Israel, a clear echo of Genesis 3.15. This epic good versus evil battle. A third, more than anything else, Moses' striking points to the promise that God will strike the Egyptians. Yahweh promises Moses in Exodus 3.20 that he will strike Egypt with wonder and plagues so that, 
so that they will let Israel go, Exodus 3, 20. And again, Moses' actions anticipate Yahweh's climactic 10th plague, wherein he would strike the firstborn son in every home in Egypt, dead. It's promised in Exodus 12, 12 through 13. Listen to the language. The Lord promises, I will pass through the land of Egypt at night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And then in Exodus 12, 29, there's the summary of the accomplishment of this promise. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon. And all the firstborn of the livestock. Moses' striking of the Egyptian points to this striking. Just as Moses sees and he rises up to help the oppressed by enacting justice so the Lord will see and execute his judgment on Israel's captors. In verse 13, it speaks of how he now confronts the Hebrew who is striking the other Hebrew. Why are you striking your companion or neighbor? Moses is a defender of the oppressed at, the, at a great personal cost. The letter of the Hebrews in verse in chapter 11, verses 24 and following reads, By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. You see, rather than moralize or psychologize Moses' actions, the biblical writers rightly point to the immense act of faith on the part of Moses. He's a prince in Egypt. And from a worldly point of view, he's throwing it all away to identify with slaves. But he was looking for a reward. A reward that can't be found in Pharaoh's palace. He had something of the promises of God in some form, and he banked everything on them. By faith, he sides with the oppressed people of God, no matter what it cost him. Moses seeing and striking anticipates this just judgment of the Lord that he brings upon their captors. God brings salvation for his people, but he brings this salvation through judgment. He crushes Egypt, the seed of the serpent, in order to free Israel from bondage. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 15 point to this as well. When it speaks about how Christ, through his death, would destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. That an aspect of Christ's coming and his death in our place is to actually destroy the devil, destroy the one who is captor, the one, as John 10, 10 says, comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but Jesus comes to give us life and give it abundantly. Just as Moses seeing and striking anticipates or foreshadows the actions taken by the Lord in the coming narrative, so also the stinging words of rejection will come up again and again, resonating even, even in our own hearts. Look there in verse 14. 
as he engages the Hebrew striking the other Hebrew and says, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you prince and judge over us? Reminds me of what we used to say as kids, you know, when somebody starts bossing you around, who died and made you king? Maybe that's an American thing, but uh, it kind of sounds like that. But it actually, it actually, it actually foreshadows really the life of Moses with the people of Israel, constantly rejecting his leadership, constantly questioning what he's doing, constantly questioning the Lord. And you just look at some of the, the references there on your outline. But the chief one finally is in chapter 32, when Moses is up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments. He's getting the two tablets of the law, right? It's analogous to wedding day. And Israel, the bride, is at the foot of the mountain having relations with someone else and saying, Aaron, make us a calf, make us, a, make us an idol to lead us back. We don't know what happened to this Moses guy, but, but we can go back to Egypt. This who made you prince and judge over us is pointing to Moses' rejected leadership. It's pointing ultimately to the rejecting of Jesus. What Stephen is doing in Acts chapter 7, he, he's, he's unpacking so much of this passage from Exodus 2, and he's, he's showing that the Jews of Jesus' day rejected and rebelled against Christ because they had rejected and rebelled against Moses and all of the prophets leading up to Jesus. See, they thought they were good followers of Moses, and he's saying, no, you're not. If you followed Moses, you would follow Jesus. And he's unpacking the Old Testament to lay them bare, and that ends how for Stephen? They pick up stones and they kill him. But this is, his, this is his conclusion to his, it's not really a sermon, it's his defense before the same high council that condemned Jesus to death. He said, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. In John's gospel, the first chapter, he writes how Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. But as many as did receive him, he gave the power to become children of God. Now I want to be clear this morning, this isn't some sort of an anti-Semitic rip on the Jewish people. Right? It's a shot at each of us this morning. The Jews were the elected of God built from nothing. Built from Abram and Sarah, whose, tomb, or whose womb was a tomb. Right, She was 90 and barren her whole life. And God built a nation out of nothing. And he gives them his word. And he redeems them and he brings them to himself. They were to be a light to the nations, but instead... Ezekiel 36 says that they profane his name among the nations. Just like it's foolish for us to say, well, if I'd have been Adam, I would have done something different in the garden. I'd have drove that snake right out of there. It's also foolish for us to think, you know, if I would have been, if I would have seen what they saw at the mountain, I would have responded differently. No, you wouldn't have. No, you wouldn't have. Right? God calls his people as exhibit A to the brokenness of humanity and our absolute need for internal transformation by the gospel. Since man's initial rebellion against God in the garden, man's heart is bent on rebellion against God and any authority, any authority. I don't know how many parents there are in the audience. But it doesn't take long in having children to see this anti-authority bent toward throwing off any rule, any judgment over a person is innate. It's not a learned thing, right? I mean, I see plenty of sin in my kids' lives that I'm like, ah, it's a mirror and it's, and it's my fault. I, I did that. 
there's a ton of sin in their lives that they didn't get from me. They came that way from the factory. Right? At one level, every human heart longs for rescue and salvation. I think it's seen in the prevalence of all the superhero motifs and books of good and evil and salvation and winning in the end. But oftentimes we want saviors on our terms, or we want to be the savior. We fancy ourselves as a superhero. Maybe we like to wear Spider-Man gear or Superman gear. It's kind of ridiculous. But this is really about how hard it is for us to ask for help, how hard it is for us to admit that we need it. We don't want somebody being boss over us. The well-known, well, I think he's well-known, um, Italian-American singer Frank Sinatra had the famous song, I Did It My Way. And that's most people's MO. I did it my way. This Moses is redeemer. He's prophet. He's, he's a prince. And his life is pointing to the greater than Moses, Christ, who is the prophet, priest, and king. Moses is seeing and striving, anticipates Yahweh's, this Hebrew's rejection of Moses' actions anticipates greater rejection and rebellion to his and Yahweh's leadership in view of the Jewish people's rebellion ultimately against their Savior. And now Moses' flight to Midian in verse 15 anticipates the nation's flight in the Exodus. Look at verse 15. When Moses heard of it, I'm sorry, when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now, the word fled occurs just twice in Exodus. It occurs here in verse 15 where it speaks of Moses' flight to Midian, and it occurs again in Exodus 14, verse 5, where it speaks of Israel's flight out of Egypt as now God hardens Pharaoh's heart to go after them. So Moses is fleeing Egypt, and that Pharaoh at the time is trying to kill him. Now, the Pharaoh in Moses' day, when he's leading them out in the Exodus, after the 10th plague, he's broken, he's saying, go. But then God hardens his heart to go after Moses because God's going to get ultimate glory and judgment at the Red Sea over Pharaoh and delivering his people. This, this glorious picture of the gospel. So his actions now foreshadow the event of the exodus to come. Indeed, he may, he may even be learning the route that he'll take him on 40 years from now. And then it says that he sat down at the well. That kind of seems strange, maybe. He sits down at the well. It's a great place to meet ladies in the ancient Near East. Um, <laughs> really, it was, uh, it was the place for sure to meet other people. Uh, and in some parts of the world, that's still the case. Uh, back in 2004, I was uh, teaching in Akkad, Sudan, and we would go out each day to pump water at the well, and there were just tons of people showing up out there, so it kind of gave me a little bit of a picture uh, for, for what's going on here in Moses' day, but he comes to the well because that's where people would be. He's a fugitive from justice. He's in a new land. Midian was a people connected with Abraham. Uh, he had a son, um, Midian. Um, then Midianite traders are the ones who took Joseph down to Egypt. So it's interesting now that, that, that Moses is fleeing to Midian. But his flight to Midian and his stationing himself besides the well in Midian, along with the coming narrative, echo similar life situations in the patriarch Jacob. 
Jacob also fled from someone trying to murder him, Esau, who wanted to kill him. He fled to Padai Ram to take a wife from among Isaac's uh, wife, Rebekah's family. When he arrives in the area, he interacts with shepherds at the well who know of his future father-in-law, Laban. Then Jacob sees Rachel coming, the shepherdess, and he waters her flock. She runs to tell her father, and the two ultimately get married, okay? So what we have here in, in the next few verses is kind of a compressed version of a similar story. Some call it like a tight scene, right? Boy meets girl at the well. One of them waters the other one's flocks, and the girl runs to tell her family the two get married. It's beautiful. <laughs> I met my wife at a coffee shop. <laughs> All right, verses, I won't give any details on that. Verses 16 through 22. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flocks. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home, their father Ruel said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Seems like a logical question. If somebody delivered my daughter, I'd want to meet this guy. You know? Where am I? Where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, called his name Gershon, for he, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Verse 16 introduces a new bit of info to the story. Immediately applicable, the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and just as Moses twice above jumped in, on the part of the oppressed, so too here he takes up the cause of these girls who are being treated harshly, obviously, by these shepherds. The language here is striking, and like the above, it foreshadows the saving work of the Lord and the life of his people. It says, then Moses saved them. The word translated saved here in verse 17 occurs only twice in Exodus, here, right? And then again, in Exodus 14.30, right? Here's Exodus 14.30. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Right? It occurs twice. Moses saving the girls from the shepherds and the Lord saving Israel from the hand of the Egyptians and leaving them dead on the seashore. If you read Exodus over and over and over and over again, you cannot help but make that connection. Right? The point ultimately of what God is doing through Moses is to point to what he's going to do at the Red Sea. The use of this term to describe Moses' actions toward the girls is not accidental. The writer Moses himself is intentionally hooking these two actions together through this shared vocabulary. Moses saving the girls from whatever harm they might have come to by the shepherds points to the Lord saving his people from the floodwaters of his judgment that came crashing down upon the Egyptians. When asked by their father how they so quickly returned home from watering the flock, the girls answered, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hands of the shepherds. This exact language is used in the very next chapter when God is calling Moses to deliver his people through the burning bush. We read in chapter 3, verse 8. Well, let me back it up to verse 7. And the Lord said, again, this, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. Is the all-seeing God, my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand 
of the Egyptians and bring them up out of that land to a good and a broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Replacing the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites. It's the same exact verbal construction to redeem or rescue or deliver from the hand. Right? Moses' action points to what God is doing. This becomes a dominant theme coming again in chapter 6, verse 6, and in chapter 12, verses 27, where the death angel is going out and he's striking down all of the firstborn in Egypt. But for those by faith who are smearing the blood over their doorposts, God is redeeming or he's rescuing them. That's the language. Yahweh has come down to deliver Israel out of the hand of Pharaoh. And then we see the marriage. Ruel, their father, sends them back to get Moses. Where is this guy? Father would be thrilled to meet such a guy. In fact, he gives Moses... His daughter Zipporah, no doubt. Moses' flight to Midian, watering of the flocks, his marriage to Zipporah, the birth of his son, all of this echoes and recalls what God had done in the life of the patriarch Jacob, and that is by design. That is by design. But this type scene finds its ultimate fulfillment in John chapter 4. I want you to look with me. I'm going to read John 4, verses 5 5 through 30. John, chapter 3. John, chapter 4. 5 through 30. Jesus and the woman of Samaria. So Jesus, he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar. Near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph, Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? Good question. He gave us the well and he drank it from it himself and as did his sons and flocks. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I, may, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and she went away into the town 
and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. There's discussion of drawing water. Jesus gives her living water. She runs to tell everyone, perhaps her family too. And she marries Christ. This living water that Jesus is referring to is the Holy Spirit, spoken of back in chapter 3, where he said, unless you're born again, unless you're born by water and the Spirit, you can't see the kingdom of heaven. And that's what's being talked about here in chapter 4 of John. Living water that Jesus referred to as the Holy Spirit, the internal working of God and the new covenant sealed with Jesus' blood. Indeed, she did marry Christ by faith. Just as every single one of us who by faith trust in Christ are united with him by faith. See, the Bible, marriage is a parable for our union with Christ. It is a picture of the gospel. Moses is a covenant mediator, redeemer, and prophet points to this greater than Moses, to Jesus, the prophet whose words we must all obey completely, the covenant mediator and redeemer who himself initiates a new and better covenant based on better promises that are grounded in his death and resurrection and the forgiveness of sin and the hope of eternal life. A death that destroys our captor, the devil. A death that saves us from the floodwaters of God's wrath. A death that rescues us from slavery. This is what Moses' actions point to, what God is doing in and through the Exodus, which itself points to the cross. I just want to close this morning with a couple of points of application. And, and look, the, the Bible is a literary masterpiece. Okay, the Bible is a literary masterpiece. It's amazing literature. Now, it's far more than that. It's the Word of God, inspired by God. But it's amazing literature. Narrative art, like when you go over to uh, uh, the Rikes Museum, I don't fancy myself as an art critic, but I do understand what, what, uh, what Rembrandt's doing with his use of light to highlight certain things in a painting. I get it. Right? And that's what the writers of Scripture do. They make connections between this thing and this thing so that you read over and over and over again and you see them together. And you don't ask stupid questions about Moses hiding a guy in the sand, but you see that, oh, Moses was looking, he's seeing, he's standing up, and he's in the place uh, executing judgment on the oppressor just like God is going to do. And he flees to, ex and then he flees to Midian, and it's anticipating the exodus. And he saves and he delivers. And it's pointing to the Exodus. It's ultimately pointing to Jesus. What we have in the Bible is not just facts. It's not just facts about God's salvation of his people. No, we have his divinely inspired interpretation of those events. I ask my students, always, in my Old Testament theology class, Look, we've got four Gospels. Would you give one of them away if you could be there? If you could, if you could be at the cross and see Jesus on the cross? If you could see the empty tomb? Would you give Matthew away, Mark, Luke, John? Man, we've got four. Would you give one of them away? And I can see on people's faces, and maybe you're feeling it this morning. Oh, oh, to be there, right? To be there and to see with my own eyes. But what if you sneeze? What if somebody distracts you and you totally miss what's going on? What we have in the Bible is not just the facts. It's exactly what God wants us to know about the facts. So that we have everything, everything for life and salvation and growth and grace. This interconnectedness that I'm talking to points to one divine mind behind all of scriptures. It's not just some ingenious editor, but God's sovereignty all of, over all of human history. 
For, for the Bible to work like it does, where, where this person's life points to Christ, and this event points to the cross, and, and, and there's all this interconnectedness. Either you have some ingenious editor that went in and put it all together, or you have a God that is providentially governing all of human history to its ultimate fulfillment in Christ Jesus, and then inspires his writers to write in such a way that we connect the right dots and see the right things. And what is it we're supposed to see? In all of Scripture, the gospel. We're supposed to see the message of salvation in every page. Because every judgment points to the judgment that hung on Christ at the cross. Every judgment points ultimately to his coming. Right? The one who came in, the one who came in on the foal of a donkey will come again on a horse, judging the living and the dead. And so if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, that's the image I want to leave you with this morning. Christ came humbly on the foal of a donkey to come to the cross to bear God's wrath for your sins and for my sins, that we might have life in him, that we might be rescued, that we might be delivered, that the serpent's head might be crushed. Or you can have Jesus coming again on a war horse where he will put down all of the rebellion against his crown. I plead with you this morning, if, if, you, if you're outside of Christ, to consider Christ. Consider him and to come to him. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for this gospel. We give you thanks that it is a gospel of grace. It is not a gospel that we earn. It is not good news for good people. It's good news for broken down, sinful people like us. And so we thank you, Father, that you see, that you judge, and that in judgment, you show mercy and grace to those who look to you for salvation. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.